Hey, it's Katie Helper. And before listening to today's episode of Useful Idiots, Matt Taibbi and I just want to clarify that we recorded this week's episode before the story of the impeachment in Ukraine really blew up. So you can look forward to us talking about it on next week's episode. As always, you can find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review us, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Useful Idiots. That was so dramatic. <laughs> Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. We have cups. We have cups. Guys, It's we have made it. We have arrived. The funny thing is there's only two of these in existence. Like they, they literally only spent that much money to do it. But that's a huge step. That makes them, you know, valuable. Mm-hmm. Delicacies. Yeah, no. And, and the funny thing is about lefties, as soon as somebody does something like this for you, you feel like you've really arrived. Like we've, oh, yeah. you've hit the big time. We've totally made bought it. Bought yeah. like a piece of merchandise for us. So. Yeah. And we're, we're going to um, we're going to talk to Nathan Robinson. Yes, today. Nathan Robinson, the um, editor and founder of Current Affairs. He is also the author of a new book called Why You Should Be a Socialist. And uh, he's also the author of Trump Anatomy of a Monster. Right, and we um, yeah. very intentionally had Nathan on we in this show. We wanted him on because of his recent piece about um, Liz Warren versus Bernie Sanders. Right, which has suddenly sort of exploded into view on multiple fronts, uh, yeah. in both in the popular culture, in the news, and on, on social media. So what do we have in the news this week for food groups? We got Republicans suck, Democrats suck. Yeah. Oh, I'm Republican yeah, suck. Yeah, you're Republican suck. suck. So I don't so really have a Republican suck. I, my Republican suck is just Sean Spicer's Dancing with the Stars costume. Did you That's see it? That's triggering. Did you see it? I didn't see it because I knew you were talking about that, so I kind of wanted to surprise I, to leave it as okay, a surprise. Okay, yeah, so you should look so, at it now. Okay, in real time. Mm-hmm. Do you watch that show, or did you just happen to come across his image? I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. Oh, you do watch it. Yeah. Dancing the salsa with his partner Lindsay. It's Sean Spicer. The difficulty I had was whether this is Republicans suck or Republicans are awesome. It's kind of a little bit of both. Right. The costume is amazing. It looks like somebody dropped a lemon rind on him from space. What is that even? It's like a Carmen Miranda shirt. It's like 1970s figure skating meets Elton John meets something. I can't quite yeah. figure out what what the third thing is. Right. There's a celebrity math equation in yeah, there somewhere. That not, that I, yeah. On the one hand, you really want to salute him for it. Yeah. It takes, a, you know tremendous guts to go out yeah. there. Do you think he like chose that. it? The I, outfit? I, I hope somebody chose it for him and that he just acceded to it because that's funny both ways. Right. He. So just so people know, right, we want right. to describe it. Uh, if you're watching this on video, of course, you'll see it. But it's a kind of bright yellow, almost chartreuse, has I, some green in it. Yeah. Uh, plunging V neckline and ruffly sleeves. I mean, I think and chiffon r- is a word that has to be in maybe, there somewhere, yeah. doesn't I think, it? I think there's, yeah, I think the ruffles on the on the plunging V and on the sleeves and <laughs> chiffon. Also, he's doing this move like this. Oh, I know, yeah. He's it's like shimmying. Like, yeah, exactly. It's really kind of amazing. Is his hair a little blonder than usual? I feel like he... Yeah, and there's a, there's sort of an M&M kind of platinum yes, blonde thing yes, going on there. Exactly. So it's like a, it's like an age-advanced M&M, hardcore right-wing... You only have one chance. ...ex-Republican aficionado in a bright chiffon 70s God. figure skater costume. And then I like the kind of... And, you know, this is, touches me personally because I can connect with it, but the sort of 
thickening middle-aged midriff. The bulge, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is on the scale of commendable versus just embarrassing. Right. I'm, I'm gonna, it's almost awesome. I'm going to tilt to commendable on this because not many people would have the guts to do this. Literally but... the guts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Guess how much he gets paid for to appear on the show. I don't know. How much does he get paid? A minimum of 125000 Per episode? I don't, it says to appear on the show, which makes it sound like that's just, that's it. I would do that for $125,000. Although yeah. that would live, it lives forever on the internet. So who knows? Right. Yeah. I just also want to give a shout out to uh, Sean Spicer. Not only did he look like he was wearing a lemon meringue or a pineapple, uh, but he also once said, I don't know if you remember this, that um, Hitler was not using the gas on his own people the same way that Assad is doing. What did you mean by that? I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that Ashad is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I, I, I understand your point. Thank you. I, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. So and, he was, and what he meant by that was he, he was trying to say that the only, the only people who he gassed were not really German. Right. Right. Yeah. And in fact, they were German. They were. Many of them were German. Some of them were German. Some weren't. But, you know, that's kind of a weird point to make. I'm not sure you have to. He's wrong. But also, like, you know, he's basically that's a Hitler apologizing line. It's not just inaccurate. And he was Trump's in a way. It makes sense because he was Trump's spokesman. So he right. should be totally ignorant and um, like incoherent and makes things up. I think you should always catch yourself when you're when you want to make the, one of those, you know, but but Hitler, yeah. But the, the Nazis, yeah. But Hitler, right. that like that those it just never works yeah. out. Just don't go there. Yeah, and usually though, um, with politicians, it's the other way. It's like it's comparing criticism of Israel to the Nazis, you know, right. stuff like that. So basically, that's your reason why we shouldn't feel bad for for making fun of his lemon meringue. Well, I costume. just wanted it to be put into context that he also has other hits, great okay. great hits. All right. All right. What do, what do we have for Democrats suck? Uh, for Democrats suck, we have a story about Modi the Prime Minister of India, who was greeted at an event uh, called Howdy Modi. Howdy Modi. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good pun. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Yep. So everyone probably knows that he's a very authoritarian Prime Minister dude, an authoritarian dude. He's like has a lot of blood on his hands for basically encouraging um, riots and the killing of a lot of Muslims mm -hmm. in Gujarat. First, our top story. For the first time in the history of independent India, a sitting chief minister, Narendra Modi, has been questioned on the role of his government in mass murders in connection with the post-Gudra riots in Gujarat. And everyone, I think, associates him with Netanyahu and with Trump because uh, they're all good friends. In fact, there's great video of Netanyahu and Modi like holding hands on the beach. Wow. It's really, it's really moving. So everyone associates him with, with Republicans, but he also was praised by Steny Hoyer, the, the Democratic congressman. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing about the Steny Hoyer thing is not only did he welcome him, but he also <laughs> praised um, Gandhi and Nehru in the same speech. What did he say? Let's see. He said, um, U.S. Democratic leader praised uh, not just Modi, but Nehru's vision of secularism mm -hmm. at Howdy Modi event. Um, U.S. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, while welcoming Prime Minister Modi at the event on Sunday, had invoked Mahatma Gandhi and India's first Prime Minister Nehru in his speech, which is very weird because they're very different. Gandhi and Nehru? Well, no. They kind of got along. But okay. Gandhi, Nehru as one and thing, Modi. and Modi, yeah. So Gandhi was probably was, the only three people from that part knew. of the world yeah, that exactly, Hoyer yeah. knew. This is a pathetic, actually, really pathetic uh, thing that he said, Hoyer. And like America, proud of its ancient traditions, 
to secure a future according to Gandhi's teaching and Nehru's vision of India as a secular democracy where respect for pluralism and human rights safeguard every individual. Okay, so first of all, that makes it sound like America and India have this shared ancient tradition of Gandhian, Nehruvian, Nehruvian secular democracy. Okay, right. But do you think that was a dig at, at Modi? Or is he just so stupid? I mean, it's sort of a dig at Republicans in general, because the Republican, the Democrat, Republican tension there is always that America was a country, the Republicans always say that America was a country founded on Christian principles. Democrats always push back on that. So I guess maybe that's a way to kind of say, but hey, it's our, it's our fellow secular democracy friend that doesn't really have as long a tradition of that as we do. I don't know. I mean, it's but it, it's you, kind of incoherent. No was it a you, dig at Modi? Was he trying to say, Modi, you better have a secular democracy or no? I don't know. I don't think it doesn't so. Just, I it wish just, it more, would. It just doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and then he commended Gandhi for having, uh, for wanting to wipe every tear from every eye and saying, as long as there are tears and suffering, so long our work will not be over. In that sense, the work of our countries is not over. So it's a kind of weird thing. I guess he doesn't watch like Sajit Ray, who's a very good director, because he could have compared him to Modi to him. But yeah, I don't, you know, Gandhi, obviously, in case people don't know, big peace activist. <laughs> pacifist. Um, if you haven't heard of this fellow Gandhi, take, yeah. yeah. So it's a and Nehru was a very very secular, and of course, like Modi is a uh, you know a Hindu nationalist, a part mm -hmm. of BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party. So it's kind of an insult to all of them, frankly. I mean, yeah, I think Gandhi and Nehru especially would be upset, and uh, Modi because he is a fascist light. I don't know if I'd call him a fascist, but definitely authoritarian Hindu fundamentalist. He's probably offended. Right. Like I don't think he likes these guys. Right. It's very strange. That's a very strange thing for Hoyer to do. He's yeah. kind of an odd dude anyway. He's very weird. Yeah. Manages to be nondescript and unlikable at the same time. Right. Which is not something that's easy to pull off in American politics. Although there, there are a few people like that. Harry Reid's kind of like that. Yes. If you asked 100 people in America what Harry Reid looks like, you'd probably get... 100 different descriptions. Could you? He's so boring looking, though. But that's the whole point. Can you can you reconstruct? Oh, I see. Could you sit down with a police artist? artist? Yeah, yeah like, we should do that. Hire a sketch artist? Can we do that on the show? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have money for cups. We can we probably hire a sketch yeah. artist. I feel like those people are underpaid, and they probably would love a chance to be on a popular podcast. So if you're a sketch artist out there, we, we want to hire you. We want, we want you to hold one of these cups in the next episode, yeah. and we're going to attempt to recreate a picture of Harry Reid yeah. and Steny Hoyer. And Steny Hoyer, yeah. That would be really funny. I bet it would look nothing like either of them. Yeah. And what about, isn't that terrible? What do we got? So, I mean, the Modi thing is kind of terrible. It, so, it is kind of terrible. So for, for isn't that terrible, the uh, World Health Organization released a report on suicide worldwide. And this is just, if you're looking for something to feel terrible about, a reason to not go outside and, and to just stay home and listen to this podcast. this podcast over and over again, you can think about this. The Globally, the entire world now, the uh, suicides have declined 9.8% over the course of the last eight years. So from 2010, roughly th through now, except in the Americas. Uh, in the United States... Um, we are at the forefront of a lot of things. Yeah, so this is from the American Psychological Association. The increase in the rate of death by suicide in the United States between 2000 and 2016 from 10.4 to 13.5 per uh, 100,000 people. This is one of the largest increases in the world. The rate increased about 1% per year from 2000 to through 2006 and about 2% per year from 2006 to through, through 2016. So... You're twice as likely to, to commit suicide as you were even 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. And 
Here's another thing. The highest rates of suicide now are for ages 70 and over. So even if you don't feel like committing suicide now, you may you can look in a forward few years. To that. Yeah, that, that's coming. So the highest suicide rates, the very highest suicide rates are for uh, males in the highest income bracket. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I knew it was white. White males in the highest income bracket. Highest income bracket. Yeah. I wonder why so, that is. So globally, it's lower. But in the, in the United States, there's a particular spike uh, for people in the highest income bracket. And then there's, there's, that corresponds with another spike if you happen to be over 70. So if you're so like me, if you're a white male who's heading towards 70, uh, so, heading sooner towards rather 70. than later, um, this is something you have to look forward to. And just the whole point of it that around the world sort of things are looking up, you know, people are killing themselves less, except here. And it right. has nothing to do with economics. It's, it's our own screwed up psychology or culture or something like that. that I is, guess there's is an emptiness this. in life. That's terrible. All right. So we have for Isn't That Weird? Oh, so for Isn't That Weird, we have a, uh, it's almost an Isn't That Weird, Isn't That Amazing. And it's a story of Yiddish classes for dogs. I'm going to sign up my my family's dog, uh, Bodhi, who's really, by the way, totally adorable. Let's see. Let me play this. Select few New Yorkers can speak to their dogs in a second language. A Yiddish for dogs class was held today in Central Park. There we go. It was put on by the nonprofit Workman's Circle, which offers the largest Yiddish language program in the world with more than 800 students annually. Yiddish, I find that the words are pretty sharp. So say, for example, the sit command, we say sit. Uh, in Yiddish, it's zitz. So zitz. dogs really get the tones of words for, very well. So I, I find they actually responded to it probably better than English. That's a dog trainer named Miguel Rodriguez, by the Miguel way. Miguel Rodriguez is teaching Yiddish to this dogs? This is beautiful. you got a Spanish guy teaching Yiddish to dogs. <laughs> I don't think he's oh Spanish. God. I think he means Latino, but it's so cute. She's wearing a babushka. I have to have Bodhi. So my, we have an adopted dog. I'm going to have to have her um, wear babushka and also speak, learn Yiddish. And if not, I'm going to lecture her about how she's like a self-loathing Jew. Excellent. It's well, that is, that is weird. All right. So what happened in the world this week? Had a, a crazy thing happen on, uh, online last week. Okay. So two things happen in um, Bernie bro, bro, alleged Bernie bro world. And everyone thinks I'm holding on to it and in the moment has passed. But no, that narrative is very much alive. So the Working Families Party which is kind of, uh, it's both kind of a, a grassroots organization and sometimes a party also, a political party. You can run on, party. yeah, it is. So they decided to endorse Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders, which is fine, but they didn't reveal the votes, how the votes broke down. Right. They, so we don't know how much the leadership's votes counted versus the membership. Now, last time when they endorsed uh, Sanders, which was, to be fair, a no-brainer because it was Sanders and Clinton, uh, they released how the b votes broke down. So you saw the leadership was like 80% right. Sanders. So now they're not releasing it. Um, so in theory, it could have been like, you know, all the members could have had 10% of the vote and the leadership could have had 90. I mean, just as an example. Right. And then basically that happened. And then. So that happened. There was a lot of backlash and people were very angry about the endorsement and the lack of transparency. And so then if you read, you know, follow the news, according to lots of websites and news sites, um, there were vile attacks um, against some of the leadership vile. of color from Working Families Party, from Sanders supporters. Um, and 100 uh, or so black leaders signed on to a letter which demanded that Sanders condemn these these vile attacks. And then on a related note, um, 
there was a trans actress who criticized Sanders for not showing up to an LGBTQ forum. And, and so this woman also was was bullied. Uh, vile attacks from Bernie Sanders supporters forced trans actress Angelica Ross off Twitter. OK, so let's start with this one and then we'll go back to the Working Families Party. Sure. Right. Because, again, this is all part of the vile attack culture that is so uh, problematic and it defines Bernie Sanders supporters. So, guys, I just want to make sure that um, I should give you guys a trigger warning because this is kind of upsetting language. Here's what um, Angelica Ross, the trans actress, said. So I spoke to a guardian after the LGBTQ forum and held back nothing. Spoke of the huge misstep from absent candidates as well. And here's some of the vicious backlash she got. Someone said to her, again, guys, if if you're sensitive, you may want to leave the room. To question Bernie Sanders' stance on LGBTQ rights is the most ridiculous thing ever and shows your bias against him. He's been an ally before it was cool and socially acceptable, while every other candidate just hopped on the equality train. Warren was a Republican not too long ago. So that's just like really hurtful harassment right there. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the harassment? Yeah. Okay. Okay, here's another one. Ready? So it's homophobic to have prior obligations. I love how she made it a point to attack Sanders, but not the other candidates who couldn't attend, but continue to praise Warren, who used to be against gender-affirming surgery for trans men and women. If you if you guys, if listeners have recovered from that attack, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proceed, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling any Democratic candidate homophobic. I just don't like how Angelica Ross assumed Bernie to be homophobic by charging him with this minor offense. By her definition, a lot of candidates are transphobic, including the one she praises. So these are the effa- the assaults the online assaults that forced this woman to leave Twitter. Part of what drives me crazy about this story, it reminds me of an old uh, tale about Lyndon Johnson. There was a story that when he was running for for Congress, um, he instructed one of his advisors to accuse his opponent of having sex with pigs. Mm -hmm. And the the guy said, Jesus, Lyndon, we can't accuse the guy of being a pig fucker. And Johnson says, let's let the son of a bitch deny it. Right. Right, yeah. And so this is kind of the tactic. It's not necessarily that that Sanders did anything, but if you if you make the opponent deny that they are something, Den- then it, yeah, right, then, then it becomes a headline, right? Then it becomes it, a thing, and it and it, and it self perpetuates. Right. This is in social media era. The, these stories have they have more legs than they used to. Of course, in the yeah. old days, because in the old days it, it required um, a bunch of uh, reporters to make that decision to continually stoke it over and over again. But now you can keep it alive artificially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing. It's like I mean, this is not harassment. Sorry, it's not harassment. These. I mean, you. The irony is, you could find harassment of any any politician has people who support him or her who harass people online. And, and also, I think one part of the story with the with the other one with the working family part, yeah. families party, like you don't we don't even know who these people are that they're they're condemning. Right. They could easily be like the near attendant trolls who are you know legion on online. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right. I have countless screenshots of people calling Bree Anna Joy Gray, who's Sanders' press secretary, um, uh, white adjacent. White adjacent. Yeah. Nina Turner is Bernie's slave. She's a hood rat. The point is, no one stands, no one condemns the smearing and the attacks and the vile attacks online of women or people of color or transgender people, not to sound like I'm being too self-righteous here, but no one condemns them when the people at the receiving end are Sanders supporters. This, this whole thing is art, art, an artificially stoked right. outrage yeah. and it's ridiculous and it's just... It's, I'm torn because part of me wants to ignore it. But also, I do think it needs to be addressed and like put to bed because 
there is so there are so many people who buy into this myth that Sanders is problematic and his supporters are problematic and that there's this unique problem among Sanders supporters. Well, I think the problem would die down if if reporters stopped talking about right. it. Right, you know, but as so, long as they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, really quick, obviously the United States on the brink of war with Iran. Yeah. But our response collectively to this is we just wanted to read the amusing tweets of Ahmadinejad, Mahmoud yeah. Ahmad because his, his Twitter account's awesome. It's very good. I agree with about 80% of it and extremely enthusiastically. They're kind of beautiful in a way. Uh, oh, he's a poet. Throughout history, the secret to success has been love, freedom, and justice. I want to read my favorite one. Can I? Sure, yeah. One of the main objectives of the Black Panther Party, hashtag Black Panther Party, was feeding the hungry, which did not sit well with the United States government. Brother Huey, October 15th. It's time to fight back. That's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark. Now Huey's dead. Now, do you know who that's quoting? No. Tupac. Tupac, really? His, his uh, cover of Changes. Wow, that's excellent. It's time to fight back. That's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark. Now Huey's dead. Here's one that, would, that would spoke to me personally. Sports and athletics are the, are the best ways to connect people to each other. Congratulations to the young men of the At Patriots on winning the hashtag Super Bowl and the people of the greater hashtag New England area. Hashtag Super Bowl 53. Yeah, he's really not afraid of the hashtag. I didn't even read all the hashtags he had used in that, but he used a lot more than I read. He's really quite a sports fan. I really That's one of the things I really like about him. Well, here's a kind of Elizabeth... Oh, we should do Who Said It? Elizabeth Warren or Ahmadinejad, because listen to this. Ready? Actually, this part is like Marianne Williamson. Throughout history, the secret to success has been love, freedom, and justice. Right? That's Marianne mm-hmm. Williamson. He's channeling her. Now, this part could be Warren. When power is in the hands of the elites, it will lead to corruption and inequality. Wow. Ahmadinejad or Warren. How about Ahmadinejad or Hillary Clinton? Yeah, let's do it. Um, we all originate from the same root and truth and have been created to love. I don't think that's, that's edgy enough for Ahmadinejad, so I'm going to go with Hillary. That's Ahmadinejad. Really? Yeah, and when I, and when I ran an advanced uh, search for Hillary uh, for the word truth... And the, the one that came up was, our founders embraced the enduring truth that we are stronger together. Quote, Hillary. Oh, so she self-quoted. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. one of them quotes Tupac, one of them quotes herself. Just saying. Hashtag just saying. When I looked up the Black Panther one, because yeah. you, you did that whole Black Panther tweet, I wanted to see if Hillary had ever quoted the Black Panthers. And what came up was, saw Black Panther with Bill this afternoon and loved it. Beautiful film, lots of action and a great message. Don't miss it. I wonder what she thinks the message is. I'm not sure. Here's one. Happy birthday to the great Malcolm X. Hashtag Malcolm X Day. Hashtag May 19th. You can't separate peace from freedom because no one else, no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. Whoa. Well, that's going to be, even without the hashtags, I would guess that that was Ahmadinejad because I don't think Hillary Clinton would praise Malcolm X. Yeah, no results for Hillary Clinton and, Mal- and even the word Malcolm. Right, exactly. Maybe she likes Malcolm in the middle. There's, there's oh, almost, yeah, it, very centrist uh, plot. There's no results for Malcolm, no results for basketball. He tweets about basketball constantly. He, he, he congratulated the Virginia Cavaliers and the NCAA win. Tweets about Kyrie Irving every now and then. The only thing we, we have to say about the Iran-America conflict right now is that you should just follow this Twitter account more because it's, it's funny. I mean, he's the former president. And he's, he's he's really woke. a ham and a sports fan. And woke, too. And woke. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's more woke than any of our politicians. Yeah. He's also insane, which is really interesting. So right. we're going to um, we're going to talk to Nathan Robinson yes. today. So excited to be talking to Nathan Robinson, who is the founder um, and editor of Current Affairs, also mm-hmm. the author of um, a few books now. You got your Trump book. You got your Clinton book. And now, why you should be a socialist. 
Why you should be a socialist is the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and you also have a really great article out on the differences between uh, Warren and Sanders. So, where where to start? Where to begin? I mean, I think we should start with the Warren Sanders yeah. thing because this is this is so, so much yeah. in the news right so now. So in the news, yeah. And and all over, yeah. I uh, not to, to preface this question. I, I have been trying to not touch this subject for yeah. a while because I thought it was kind of unfair to both candidates. <laughs> Um, right. This narrative of, the, of there being a divide between the two of them, but in the last, I don't know, Nathan, if you feel this way, but in the last two or three weeks, the outpouring mm-hmm. of uh, affection for Warren yep. in the national media has been so, so overwhelming and overt, and I don't know exactly yes. what that's <laughs> related to, but it is uh, did you notice that, and, and what's that all about? And oh yeah, it, yeah. Well, so um, you're completely right. There's been a change. And I held off, too, on this, because when I saw Sanders and Warren at the debates together, they were kind of unified, and I really liked it. They were working together to smack down the other candidates. It was very satisfying. And I was like, I don't want to heap crap on Elizabeth Warren here. I, wanna, I want them to be a team. Um, but <laughs> then I got this chilling feeling, right? Because I, you know, she just, the Des Moines uh, Register poll just put her way ahead of Bernie. And I thought, oh dear, I know what's going to happen here. What's going to happen here is the press is going to declare that this race is over, that Elizabeth Warren is the unity candidate, that she's Bernie without the baggage, that she can appeal to the center and the left, and that we all just need to rally behind Warren and the race is over. So I, I've i been with you, Matt. I've been trying to not uh, stoke this divide, and I've been a little uncomfortable as, you know, Jacobin's been like, this is why Elizabeth Warren's not a leftist. Um, but now I think, okay, well... You know, she's ahead in the polls. She's fair game. And it's time to make these differences very, very clear because it is actually important. This is a primary and there are going to be big differences between who's picked here. Right. And your piece, by the way, is called The Prospect of an Elizabeth Warren Nomination Should Be Very Worrying. Mm-hmm. And, and what's what, I am and, and, and your, your thesis, I mean, it's it's basically that you're not entirely sure that that Warren can't be trusted to slide back to a kind of version of the Democratic Party that's been incredibly disappointing in the past. Is, is that is that unfair or is, is that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a couple things. Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of that. It's like there are things that make me not completely trust Elizabeth Warren. You know, I. I love Elizabeth Warren, right? I love, there's nothing more satisfying than watching Elizabeth Warren in a Senate hearing humiliating some CEO or some Treasury official, right? She's great. (laughs) Ah, ah, she's wonderful. But uh, at the same time, there are just these very troubling signs. And so there's, there's a couple of things. There's the strategic thing where, like, I'm not sure that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have the same approach to how to build power. There's the ideological thing where I'm not exactly sure that they have the same idea of what a better world would look like. And then there's the kind of character thing where I'm just not sure that I trust completely that Elizabeth Warren isn't becoming more radical in this primary because she knows that that's where a lot of us are at and needs us to vote for her. Um, There have been things like the fact that she's like, I'm not going to take corporate money in the primary, but maybe in the general election, because I'm I don't want to you know I don't want to leave that uh, I, I don't want to take that off the table. Right? Didn't she use that phrase that I can't stand that we, we can't unilaterally disarm? Mm-hmm. 
right? And that that yeah, yeah unilateral disarmament. And that's always been a that's a line that that they use they trotted out a lot in 2016. I feel like that was a that was a pretty common social media argument that you saw that um, you know taking corporate money. It's just it, we have to do it. It's an it's a necessary right. evil because otherwise we're not going to win against against the Republicans. But the whole problem of the party has been that its entire mission has been corrupted by its its donors over the years. So I, I, that's yeah. troubling. When I when I saw that 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 was that was upsetting. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah, you, that unilateral disarmament phrase, which translated means, well, so long as the Republicans are being unethical, we're going to be just as unethical because um, we need to be unscrupulous in order to win. Of course, it's a phrase that's used to bash pacifists and anti-nuclear activists. So right. even using that phrase... Right, although uh, she was it, pretty it, good a, in, in, ver- in, um, in her words, at least, about Iran during that debate. Um, mm-hmm. The Jake Tapper, of course, uh, that was the when she and Bernie were standing together, like both physically they were side by side, but also, you know, ideologically, that was nice. Um, Yeah, I mean, my my, the thing I struggle with is, first of all, as we talked about with Will Menneker, um, I don't think she's as electable, nearly as electable as um, Mm -hmm. Sanders is against Trump. And I always cite you when I make this point. I always cite you with two points. One is when you say that um, if people think Sanders is old, he should challenge uh, uh, Donald Trump to a basketball game. Great idea. And then the other thing is that Sanders is more electable definitely in this race. I mean, as you said when I interviewed you, maybe not if the candidate were Rubio or Cruz, um, but definitely when Donald Trump is the nominee, is the president, is the nominee we're running against. Um, my challenge is, and then I would love to go over kind of the differences, because I, I do think that sometimes it's hard to explain the differences between Warren and Sanders in the kind of more material terms, like besides we get the that there's they have different conceptions of power um, and different and ideological differences. But what would that look like? Um, But my other challenges and you can answer this in whichever order you want, but is how we can make that point without bashing her and alienating potential (laughs) Sanders supporters. Right. Yeah. And we also do want them to stand together right for a while. We want them to stand yes. together so that there's more than one person on stage who's yeah. defending Medicare for all, even though she doesn't have a plan for it. But it's still good optics and good rhetoric, mm-hmm. right, to not have Sanders being the only and one because, making that point. And because she's really the logical choice for VP, so you don't you don't really want to undermine her too much because she's so much better. And and it does feel a little you want to be so cautious because she's like the second best person in the Senate. Right, so if if you're like, no, she's intolerable. Um, it's only Bernie is literally the only person that that we consider to be on our side. Then then that's a problem because she needs to be an ally. She needs to be someone that you work with. She's clearly an incredibly important part of advancing a left agenda in American politics right now. So I. I I try and be real cautious, and in this article I say, well, if the nominee isn't Sanders, by God, it had better be Elizabeth Warren, because the difference between the two of them and the next closest candidate, you know, it, it's just it's just miles. Um, so, yeah, I, I try and be careful, but also I think these differences are really, really, really important, because my big fear, and I think the big fear that a lot of us have, is we really need this not to be the Obama 
administration again. And we need to figure out what went wrong there. Why did uh, Obama lead to Trump? Why is it that it felt like such a such a failure and how do we avoid it? And I think there are aspects of, of I mean, of course, Elizabeth Warren clashed with the Obama administration on economic policy and, and took them on and they hated her, which is great. That's a good sign. Um, but also, there are things that about her that make me think that she has a number of the same delusions about how change occurs. The, the main thing that, and, and the thing that I write about in this article being that I think she views the world as law professors view the world, and I think that's the way that Barack Obama viewed the world, and I think Bernie views it as labor organizers view the world, and I think the way labor organizers view the world is much more accurate than the way that law professors view the and world. And Nathan is a, was a law, did you finish law school? I did, I did. I am technically a lawyer. So yeah, you say that with a author- great authority. So I've seen, I've been inside, I've spent a lot of time inside these kinds of uh, elite uh, legal institutions. So I, and, and, and been repulsed by what I've seen there. So I speak as an insider, I, I've seen how the sausage is made, and I have come to report that I wouldn't trust anyone any of my law professors or <laughs> to govern the country. And there's a really specific, it's not, just, it's not just resentment on my part, there's a really clear reason for that, which is that law professors are policy wonks, right? And policy wonks think about plans. Elizabeth Warren's whole campaign is plans. Here are my, here are my really good plans. Um, but the thing that I think we should have learned is that plans are nothing without building a movement. And if there's no movement behind you, then you can have the best plans in the world, but all you're going to have is the White House, and that's it. I mean, is it is that an is it an accurate um, description to say that kind of the fundamental difference between the two of them? Bernie's campaign is really about displacing how power works in this country. In other words, he wants he wants to replace the the whole coalition of sort of wealthy corporate donors uh, and the polit- and the Democratic Party uh, with a new a new movement that's essentially based on you know voters, uh, small donations. You know, sort of people versus institutions. Whereas Warren seems to be preaching this idea of a a functioning coalition between sort of large corporations, uh, market forces. She uses that phrase a lot, mm-hmm. right? She talks about Ooh, how yeah. how we want we want to use market forces yeah. to speed the transition to clean energy, which seems like it's completely an anathema to how Sanders views the whole thing. Um, but I, I think she genuinely believes that, right? I think I think that's that's not mm-hmm. like lip service with her. She actually believes that there's there's this middle ground to be found. But if it feels to me like that's kind of the same thing we've been hearing since maybe the new de- Democrats came along in the late '80s, early mm-hmm. '90s. I mean, is that inaccurate? I, I, I no, I think I think that's right. There's a lack of cynicism on her part about the motivations, certainly, of elites and of the wealthy, where she says, you know, and her problem, if you notice her big recent speech uh, in New York, uh, the theme of it was corruption. Yes, and with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, right? Right. And I, I love that she talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. She's been talking a lot about labor history. But she said, corruption killed all of those women. 
And I'm not sure that that's quite accurate. Libertarians talk a lot, free market libertarians talk a lot about corruption. They, they don't think the government should be influenced by market actors, right? The government. Uh, uh, but um, people on the left ha generally have a, a slightly different view, which is that the problem is not so much that those people have, I mean, it is that they have too much influence over the government, but the, you can't stop it by just insulating the government. The problem is that you have a, a the, the country is owned by a small group of extremely wealthy and powerful people. And unless you change the structure of who owns things and who has power in society, um, you're not actually going to change anything fundamental. And so Elizabeth Warren uses language that suggests that she's not actually... Now, it's hard because a lot of her policies are great, right? She puts, wants to put workers on corporate boards, which is actually a pretty radical policy in America. Um, but like the lack of attention in her policies to uh, building labor unions and um, and enlarging the labor movement. Uh, there's not much about that on her website. And it's a fundamental part of the left worldview that unless you adjust the power balance between workers and owners, you're not really going to change anything. And that's why the labor movement is so central to the left. I was thinking about this. This is kind of a weird question, but what is the definition of corruption? I mean, in this in the political context, what does it well, mean? Well, I, I mean, for instance, I, I think Elizabeth Warren's argument about the financial crisis wasn't that there were fundamental issues with how our economy is structured. So, in, so much as there were a, a bunch of bad actors who abused the system, mm -hmm. and and the breakdown there was really in the enforce in the area of enforcement. In other words, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we talk about the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, there, there were controls that were supposed to exist to prevent, for instance, companies betting against their own products, or right. or representing to clients that they're not that they're buying high rate securities, but when they're actually junk rated, and so she constantly was was hammering the idea that we just need to fix these enforcement issues and everything will be okay. And I think not everybody's convinced of that, right? I think there are, Sanders would come from the argument that there were fundamental. Problems with the way the economy is organized, right. structural as so opposed to enforcement. Right. I think that's what she means by corruption. Like there, there is an ideal there that's mm -hmm. that's that we're we're not reaching, and we could just by mm -hmm. doing doing better. I, I think I think that's yeah. kind of what she yeah. means. So I I was thinking about this because um I was talking with Susan Kong about um some on my show about the Working Families Party and about the the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Speech and I was like, so in the example of Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, the corruption in that case would be the lack of enforcement of the mm -hmm. workplace of the worker the safety codes. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And what? So if it's not corruption, which I think we agree it's not, what 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 is it? It's the fact that you have a division between workers and, and owners, right? Which is that the the people who work in that factory are not the ones who are setting the terms of their work. And if they were able to, um, then you wouldn't have things like that because workers wouldn't willingly place themselves in really unsafe environments. So the project of the left, I mean, the definition of socialism has always been worker ownership of the, of the means of production, not government ownership necessarily, but expanding the role of the people who are actually doing the things things in uh, they get the more of the benefit from their work and they also get to get to set the conditions and the problem with the corruption argument has always been that it's very difficult to imagine a world in which the government can exercise really really strong regulatory powers but you still have 
this the same the same social power in the hands of owners, right? Like, how are you going to keep them from writing the laws? How are you going to keep them from spending very very large amounts of money? Money is a kind of power, and until you redistribute wealth, you're really not going to be able to change who has power. That's right. the left argument. And also we see, for instance, even when you enforce it, like there have been so many cases of, of companies being fined for workplace, mm-hmm. um, you know, worker rights violations, and then they pay the fine and it's not worth it to um, follow the workers, the safety codes. So they pay the fine and then they violate the codes again because the well, fine isn't, right? Yeah, or to take another example, for like in the financial crisis, you, know, you, you could look at all the major banks were repeatedly fined for the same kind of fraud. And they were, in many cases, they were told by judges, we're going to give you, we're going to let you off with a, a lesser uh, punishment, but you have to promise not to do it again. Right. And then they repeatedly do it again. Right. And, and there's no, and so that's, when you make the corruption argument, there, the only way that works is if there's actually an enforcement mechanism that ultimately works. And that's right. kind of the problem there. Yeah. And, to, and you'd have to imagine, to imagine such an enforcement mechanism, you'd have to imagine the most talented lawyers all going into the government and not into the private sector, while the private sector still has all of the money to pay 10 times as much as the government. So it's going to be very, very hard to construct a really powerful regulatory apparatus so long as there's so much concentrated wealth that can, buy, that can have teams of 100 or 1,000 lawyers fighting you at every turn. Right. So one of the differences you point out between the two candidates is um, between the, the, future presidential, the future president and his future vice president, by which I do not mean myself, although that's a possibility, but I'll step aside if Warren accepts it. Um, is the means-tested versus universal programs. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that and the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very wonky thing, but it it really does uh, speak to a very fundamental difference between the left vision of the world and the kind of centrist liberal vision of the world, which is that a lot of times the centrist liberal vision of the world says, well, we're going to give these things to the people who really need it. And that sounds reasonable, right? You don't give free college to Donald Trump's children or whatever. But when you think about what that actually means in practice, what it means is that people are constantly having to prove that they deserve these public goods, that they're in the category of people who get those things. And if you imagine what that would be like if we applied it to things that we've already got, you can kind of see why it, it breaks down, which is like, yeah, free college, you don't want to give it to Donald Trump's children. Okay, but what about free public high school? We give that to anyone. And what about the library? What about the public parks? Um, are you going to say, are you going to start means testing those things? Are you going to say, well, actually what you get is you get, if you're below a certain income threshold, then you get book vouchers. Um, What it means is, and and it also creates this kind of uh, humiliation or this ritual of like people who are poor are constantly having to fill out forms to say I am poor please give me the please I'm begging for the thing um, we published an essay called the case for free college in current affairs by someone who went uh, to uh, community college and got and got a free education and he was talking about you know how liberating it felt 
to not have to prove that you were worth the benefits. And so socialists have always said, well, you, you should just have these things be universal entitlements because it bonds us together as a society so that the rich, you know, that you can say to rich people, well, you get this as well. We all get it. It's something we have in common instead of this kind of like, you know, dribbling it out to people who we deem worthy. And if they uh, if they cross the threshold one year, then suddenly we take right. away yeah. the benefits yeah. that we've given them. Right. Yeah. And it's stigmatizing. Um, it's and it's charity, right? It becomes charity as opposed to a universal right, um, and it also becomes much less, much more vulnerable to being cut when you don't have buy-in from everyone. Um, and of course, I would, you know, there's a reason that Newt Gingrich talks about welfare queens and not social security queens. Do you think that the the press right now is is making a move to? Do you think it's also not just negative about Sanders? But but they're but they're also pushing Warren as a way to kind of nudge out Biden. I yeah, mean, I, 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 I'm, so. I'm beginning to get that that impression as well. That you think so? know, yeah, I because, think so. Because they're underreporting the fact that that Biden's Biden is pretty stubbornly hung on to a lead and almost you know throughout throughout the country, and yet we we almost never see that story being talked about. It it's always Warren <laughs> surges to a new level or whatever it is. What's yeah. that about? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's because they ideologically dislike Biden. Just to clarify, I think that they think his senility is too much of a, a liability. It's possible. Anyway, no, yeah. really, but yeah, so, yeah. What were you saying? Sorry, I cut you off. Well, yeah. If I mean, if we take it to, if if we operate on the assumption that for that class of people, the real aim is anyone but Bernie Sanders, right? Because Bernie Sanders poses a much greater threat than any of the other candidates. Then, yeah, I can see it uh, uh, very much that you would go, well, Biden clearly has some very significant electoral liabilities like the inability to produce an entire sentence and have the end of the sentence be on the same topic as the beginning of the sentence, which you think, well... We don't even care about prepositions, obviously. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And so Elizabeth Warren is then, okay, someone we can work with. We can deal with Elizabeth Warren. Um, she's a pragmatist. She probably doesn't mean it when she talks about single payer. Uh, I mean, uh, Dylan Matthews of Vox just concluded, he just examined her healthcare policies and was like, yeah, I don't think she's really very serious about single payer. I'm probably going to ditch it. Um, and and I, I, I agree with that too. So Warren, yeah, does come out as the person where you think, well, and you know, for a while they tried to put push Pete Buttigieg and that didn't work because he was just such an obvious, like, empty suit management consultant woodchuck yeah no yeah no the the, my favorite was the was it new york magazine that had the halo cover of him oh my god yeah yeah yeah. the angel come to save us yeah Yeah. new york or new yorker i can't remember yeah Yeah. i'm gonna look that up right now (laughs) um well also did you guys see the um the the piece in the washington post that said douglas sat for scores of pictures to normalize the idea of black excellence and equality and Warren's thousands of selfies with supporters could do the same f- for a female president. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. I did see that. I mean, yeah, that's an amazing comparison. Extraordinary. It is New York Extraordinary. Magazine. Did you hear about this, She Matt? is all no. Frederick Douglass. So they both had their picture taken? A lot of times. A lot of times. And they're smashing it. They're smashing stereotypes. Okay. By having their picture taken a lot? Yes. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, wouldn't anybody who has their picture taken a lot have? Well, she's a woman and he was a freed slave and black. So they have the underdog thing in common. It's pretty offensive. I mean, it's so offensive. I'm just glad that they didn't try to incorporate the native. I'm glad that they didn't say would they, would that be 
she could do the same thing for for a woman president and Native well, Americans everywhere. Actually, well, now that you mentioned that, I mean, I, I know that everyone wants to get past and bury the Native thing. Bury the hatchet? Non-issue. Non <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Katie. We can I just said it was good. It was good. I... Uh, I know everyone wants to get past that, but also, like, if we're thinking about what it would be like in a race against Trump, um, she did fabricate a, an important aspect of her identity for many years in a really appalling and kind of racist way, and uh, it, it, it might be an issue that she did that, and it's also still not clear whether she's clinging to her claim of Native ancestry or not, because the DNA test suggests that she does still maintain that she is a Native person. Right. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I struggle with that because part of me admires making a mistake and then thinking about it for 30 or 40 years yeah, and then double, doubling it, yeah. down. Yeah, like right. that, that takes some guts, actually. Yeah, it does, yeah. You know? True. Yeah, cool. commitment, yeah. Conviction. Either that or severe delusion, but one, yeah. one of you know, they're both interesting. Yeah, and you do know about, we, we try to, I try to mention this on every show. I don't try it, it just comes up. Pow Wow Chow, the 1984 cookbook she contributed to. The cookbook to. is crazy. The cookbook. Ableist. By the way, <laughs> not only is she in it listed as Cher Elizabeth Ward Cherokee, her husband, Bruce Mann, is also contributed a recipe for something that's... What's, do you know what, remember what the recipe was that she well, contributed? Well, one of them was crab-based. Matt and I are going to make it, actually, on one of our shows, yeah. Is he an ally? Is that what he gets to contribute as? I don't know, but he's listed as a Cherokee in the in the cookbook. Uh, maybe it's a marital thing. Maybe you marry into it. Oh God, it's just appalling. I just actually. I want her to take up. Leonard no, we have Peltier's to we have case. to make it for the next episode. Yeah, we really do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and all, and we should we should we should sit down and like watch a football game while oh, we shit, eat it. Yeah. Do you think she, she would pardon good. Leonard Peltier as president? No. Yeah. Well, well uh, this is one thing that I, I I think is really important that people should think, and this is what I ask people to do in the article is think about what she'd be like as president, right? Do you trust that she's going to take on like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? Like those, those two are a huge impediment to progress. They are throwing roadblocks in the path of the left. We need to get rid of them. They need to be out. And Are you asking if she'd take out a hit on them? And I, do, do, well, I mean, do you really think that she believes that those people need to be gone? I, I don't think I, so. I can see them all in the White House wearing like really goofy Christmas sweaters and celebrating yeah. Christmas together. And Hanukkah. Like with a Schumer with the big, yeah, yeah. And Hanukkah. Right, and the creation right. of the earth. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean. Um, she also apparently there's a video of her talking about how she thinks she's Native American because they have high cheekbones. Oh, did she? No. Did she say that? Yeah, I just heard about it. I got to look for the video. Yeah. Warren says her great-great-great-grandmother is Cherokee, but genealogists have yet to confirm that. Warren referenced a photo of her grandfather on her mantle as part of the family lore. My Aunt B has walked by that picture at least a thousand times, remarked that, he, that her father, my papa, had high cheekbones like all of the Indians do, because that's how she saw it. And she said, and your mother got those same great cheekbones, and I didn't. She thought this was the bad deal she had gotten in life. Um, and of course, on foreign policy, there's a significant difference. She, I think, thinks that, well, she hasn't spoken a lot about Israel, which, which um, Amo, Sander, Amo Bernie, Uncle Bernie has. Um, she does not have as critical a view of of like of American foreign policy in general. She thinks it kind of goes overboard and we shouldn't be fighting as many wars. She actually just spoke to the Council on Foreign Policy um, 
And that would be a good thing for me to review, for instance, before mentioning in any detail. Um, well, let's just go out on a limb and, yeah. Yeah, she said that she would um, invade and blow up North Korea, um, overthrow uh, Maduro through military force. I'm kidding. She didn't say those things. But <laughs> Insta- she, install she, a military dictatorship yeah, yeah. in Belgium. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. Didn't we want to... We wanted to... Um, what do we want to do to Denmark? We wanted to invade Denmark a couple on times general, a year. On general principle. Yeah, on general principle, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think generally the United States should have warships basically outside of every country, just just right. threateningly, even, right. especially our friends. What's it called? A, a, a something in every port? Yeah. Well, Isn't that an expression about women or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A, yeah what yeah. is it? A wench in every port? It's something like, in, in, in every port of call. Yeah. No. So this could be they, an, an armada, sh- a battleship in yes, every port. Yeah. 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 They do, f- ships are female, right? Yes. I mean, yes. now we have... Should we fact do, check whether ships Do we female? have ships that are like he, him? Um, they, them? No, they're always she, aren't they? Yeah. I think so. No, not we got to yeah. bring transgender awareness into that sphere. Also, do you know that Elizabeth Warren's Twitter bio oh, yeah. says she, her? I think Kristen Ball told us that. What, the she, she declares oh. her pronouns? Yeah, on her Twitter bio, which is good and inclusive, but I don't know if there was any confusion. And I guess the point is that you just make the norm that everyone has to clarify so that you're, it's almost like instead of having means tested, it's yeah. a universal well, thing. But Elizabeth Warren also has a bad thing on uh, trans issues, which is that in 2012, uh, where a judge ruled that a prison inmate in Massachusetts was entitled to uh, gender reassignment surgery, and she came out publicly and said she thought it was a bad use of taxpayer money. So, um, well, that's because she believes in two spirits, so you don't have to. Oh, come on! I'm (laughs) mocking Native Americans. I'm mocking her. uh, Her weapon, you know. I I didn't say anything. I know Nathan did. Sorry, I just made a noise. It's Nathan. You are silencing and undermining a woman. Um, Nathan, why should I be? Why should I be a socialist? I'm not one. So, so, so why? Why should I be? How do you know you're not one? Mm. Because I lived in the Soviet Union. What, oh, you, you probably weren't expecting that. <laughs> wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I think, Under I think we might have conflict, because one of the things right. about, about my book is that I try and discuss what socialism means, and I think you're probably not a socialist by the conservative definition that socialism means a giant government that runs everything. Which I'm not either, because, you know, the funny thing is, like, a lot of anarchists are socialists, right? And have been historically, right? Emma Goldman is an anarchist socialist. So it it can't be that it's about the government running everything. I mean, the historical definition has been about worker control. And in the Soviet Union, worker control was kind of an illusion, as I understand it. I mean, you live there. But um, not under, like, Stalin. He's not that old, though. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, one of the things about it is that that I try and argue is that, I mean, unless we really are empowering working people, unless we are really actually collapsing the divide between the people who own the country and the people who work to do the stuff, then we're not really creating anything resembling socialism, right? I mean, mean, North Korea calls itself socialist. It also calls itself democratic, but it's not a democracy, uh, right? It's it's not not a people's democratic republic. It's just a lie. So in many ways, in the same way, a lot 
of things that call themselves socialist are not really doing the thing that socialists are talking about doing. Um, I love the Terry Eagleton definition of socialism, which is that a socialist, a socialist is just a person who's been unable to get over their outrage that most human beings have lived lives of unremitting toil and misery. And that's kind of where my socialism starts, is with this sense, and what I think distinguishes us from liberals, which is that we're really, really mad at human suffering and at exploitation. And since, Matt, you are one of the... Well, it's funny that your book is Hate Inc. and you're ostensibly anti-hate because I feel like hate is very important to me personally. And I feel like, uh, <laughs> it is. You, you it's a moral, a... Guy, moral compass, yeah. Yeah, I feel like you have a lot of it too. And I feel like our shared hatred, you know, Alexander Coburn famously used to say, is your hate pure? And that was the test for whether you're a good leftist was whether your hate was pure. And I feel like that's kind of the starting point for my socialist instinct and where I feel that we overlap. That's interesting. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll think about but that. But you can't yeah. have the hate without the love. I don't mean that in a That's prescriptive true. way. I mean that in a descriptive way, right? Like I got lots of love, Katie. Like, I got lots of love. I know you do, but I'm saying the, the hate that you have when you're a righteous socialist is, the, yeah. is based on the love of the people who you think are being screwed over. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I it's, saw, a solidarity, it's a feeling of solidarity. Yeah. It's a very strong feeling of solidarity. That's how I ground the, what I call the socialist ethic, is in this real sense of identifying with people who are being screwed over. And I think, I think a lot of liberals don't really feel that. And I worry that, you know, Elizabeth Warren has showed some of that, but she doesn't show the kind of, like, I'm going to fight to the death until we, you know, until we have a fair society. That's what I really, really want. And that's what really, really separates the socialists out. It's not so much economic policy, um, because you can have a decentralized socialism, or you can imagine a centralized socialism. Uh, it, it really is about that kind of feeling of solidarity and that outrage and that right. determination. Yes, I agree. And the so Matt, I'm going to give you the book and you're going to be persuaded. All right. All right. Well, we, we should check in later on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hate Inc. That's capitalist, but hate org. Hate.org mm. would be the socialist, perhaps. Yeah. Um, or hate.edu, depending on, yeah. EDU. All right. Well, excellent. So you, just f- finally, to wrap up, I mean, do, do you think that this, this coming sort of confrontation between Warren Sanders and, and, and Biden, essentially, is this going to be a litmus test on what America, the Democrats, their voters' appetite for socialism is? Or do you think it's going to be about something else, ultimately? Hmm. Question. Well, you know, I because I believe, as I think you do, in the basic thesis of manufacturing consent, I am nev- I'm always cautious about call- calling things litmus tests because I know right. that people are sold ideas, right. and I think yeah. that you know you could call it a litmus test that people haven't supported a giant socialist movement in the past, but I think there are reasons um, for that that go beyond people just don't like it, and also and that they include the fact that it's constantly misrepresented and there. Are of forces working against it. For example, um, the New York Times ran a, a, a story when Elizabeth Warren hit the million donation threshold. Bernie Sanders hit it months earlier. They didn't run a story, right? And so people are going to be sold Elizabeth Warren just as they were sold Pete Buttigieg. And I think, so it's hard for me to say, well, if they buy, if Warren becomes the nominee, that's really going to be um, a, just like I don't think the fact that McGovern lost shows that leftism is dis- politically discredited in America is a center-right country. So I'm cautious about saying things like that. Yeah. All right. Also, really quickly, I just wanted to say that free, I mean, it's. we'll have to talk about this on another episode, but it is interesting that the hate that, that you have and that I have, they're, they're, liberals have hate, but it's of people I think that we don't have hate for necessarily, 
I think it's there's a lot of power built into our who we hate, whom we hate. Um, because I do think that there are people who are redeemable and reachable, who liberals write off and have contempt and hatred for. Um, and I think that they don't hate the right people. They don't right. hate the powerful people. That's who we need yeah. to focus our hate on. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, righteous hate, yeah. And, and you know, SNL did a skit about Jeff Bezos, and the and it was like about he was a hero in the sketch, and he was it wasn't about how awful and exploitative he is. And I thought, oh, that's the problem. You, if you look at Jeff Bezos and you don't get enraged, this is the difference between you. Yeah, we should give <laughs> yeah. a test. We should see what areas of the brain light up if it's empathy or rage. Yeah, I yeah. think the the South Park treatment of Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos was excellent with the the distended head, you know, and. He, yeah, he was just completely loathsome in that one. Yeah, but if you're if you're not satirizing him, I don't think you're you're coming yeah. from the right if place. If you're not, as as Emma Goldman said, um, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. If I can't mock uh, Jeff Bezos, I don't want it. Then you're not a, a an ally. Then you're a bad person. Right, I'm right. just paraphrasing and updating. Yeah. Um, All right, Nathan. Thank, thank you so you much so for much, coming Nathan. on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Tremendous we'll have to have you fun. back. I'm glad I got to talk to you both. Well, yeah. well, I'm, I'm right. going to read your book, and we're going to we're going to re- revisit this whole should I be a socialist thing or not like, yeah. later. Oh yeah, that'll be fun. All right, thanks All right. so much. Thanks, All right, see you both. Bye. Bye now. All right, so you're a socialist, Matt? No, no, not yet. No. Just okay, but you haven't read the book yet, and that was just a preliminary discussion. You'll have to get you know for your own mental well being. You may want to consider it. But. My basic political instinct is that like political power should be perfectly balanced so that people have as little of it as possible. Yeah, because right. Because people basically suck. Wait, what years were you in the Soviet Union again? Uh, at the very end, 90, 91. Oh, so you did live it, yeah. Yeah, I was a student in the Soviet Union. Wow. Did you ever see Gorbachev? Gorbachev, is that how you say it? Yes, I actually encountered Gorbachev twice, and I once did a practical joke with him where uh, we pretended to be from the New York Jets and offered him a job as the perestroika coordinator uh, of the New York Jets. Perestroika means restructuring. So I wrote to them and uh, he had this thing, the Gorbachev Foundation in Moscow. And we said, you know, our team is going through a period of restructuring and we thought that you'd be really good to give speeches to the team. Bill Parcells had just been hired and he's a big fan of your work. And so we sent them this letter and like within a couple of days, we got this letter back saying the president is willing to fly to New York at your earliest convenience and everything. It was was pretty funny. What a team player. Yeah, he really was. Wow. So then what did you do? We disappeared. I mean, you know, I changed our fax number and everything but oh, yeah. would you you should have done it we should, have, should have done really it well we offered him a lot of money that was oh, the thing that was so, the problem. well yeah. you should have asked see said the money fell through would he still do it yeah would he still do you see what a good fly, how good of a socialist he really is yeah yeah what about um boris yeltsin you pull any uh so my my funniest boris yeltsin story is that i was in a press conference with him once and i was in the back with a bunch of american reporters and uh this this joke was only funny if you've ever seen the television show cheers yes have you seen i have it? yeah so um, I was in the back with a bunch of Americans, and, and uh, Yeltsin walked in, and he, as he always, he was kind of stumbling. Right. And uh, all the American reporters in the back said, Norm! Like that. Really? Yeah, and that became like a tradition uh, a little bit in, in, yeah. in Moscow, because, you know, I, I've never seen Yeltsin sober. Right. So, uh, and now it's too late, right? Yeah, yeah, He's exactly. He is the most obituary person in history. So if you know how the, the networks work, they do obituaries ahead of time once you start getting close to death. Oh, yeah. Because they want to have it in the can right, in yeah. case when, when it happens. They started the doing the, the Yeltsin obits in like 1990 because he, he looks like so he died of liver failure. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And they would just change the top, you know? Right. And he, he, was, he was close to death so many times. Like we, we were writing up the Yeltsin is dead stories 
phrase repeatedly in Russia. And uh, tune into uh, Useful Idiots again next week. Yes, you can find us on iTunes, and you've got to rate and review us. Right, because we want to beat Podsafe America. You know, I wasn't into that originally. I was like, more, yeah. I just didn't feel like that was something I wanted to invest myself right. in personally. Right. Now I'm into it. You know, like, screw yeah. those people. I think screw maybe Pod, it should be our Podsafe yeah, America. Yeah. F, F Podsafe America. I don't know what they don't have cups like this. They don't have cups like this. They don't have the woke button. Right. Um, and I think that should be part of our mission statement. All right, well, let's beat Podsafe America. Yeah. Tune in next week, and uh, thanks for listening. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.